Act, where we give legal precedence or decisions made in court, an academic angle. We exercise our academic freedom to learn more, to understand, to love, to criticize. And at the end of the day, we always leave this platform successfully educated. So today, our interest today is a very interesting. But before I go to the case credentials and before I introduce what we're going to talk about today, I have to introduce the people who will make our day successful. Having Don Watson from Jacob Karen, that's a journalist student. He finished his 4.2 from Jacob Karen, a smart one. And I hope you guys learn from him tonight. We're also having Mokwa Bichanga, who is also a finalist like Don from Jacob Karen. We are having Masila Fit. Masila Fit is a member of the Law Family Foundation. Uh, and she's a head of department in the Law Family Foundation. She forms the panel today critically to analyze the judgment we'll be talking about. We have Odilia Mayodi from Moi University, the resilient Odilia from last week's discussion. <laughs> we don't know what she has in store for us this week, but we are hoping that it will be fun like last week. We have Miss Vanessa Mugo from African Nazarene University smart mind that we met with in this legal journey and we're going to learn from her tonight as well the last one in that panel is a friend that i respect we have gone to, uh, through this journey together met in few moods and his resilience the way he's been consistent is outstanding martin kyoko arguably the best mute in africa from kenyatta university is with us today we also have members from the Law Family, Nasserian Kasura, Harrison Kuguru joining us from Mombasa, and a lot others from the Law Family in the house. Uh, important to mention is that my mother in Moot <laughs> is also in the house, the lady who taught me everything I know today, can say that we're in the field of Moot, judged me in my first Moot in campus when I was pathetic, and today is here to um, assess the growth of the son, Linus Maina. She's also a mother of a lot of law students in YouTube and uh, Instagram, she'll, she'll speak. I know she'll say a word, she'll greet us. She's in the house. From around 8.40 p.m., we are going to be joined by former MP in Diwa constituency, Honorable Agustino Neto Oyugi, who will also form part of our panel from 8.40 until 9.30. So with that, we get to the gist of today's discussion. So ladies and gentlemen, your moderator, the guy who will be making this fun or annoying at your own pace <laughs> will be Max Ogula, this annoying guy speaking here. So I'll start that today, uh, our interest is a case that is very funny, very fresh in the minds of young lawyers and in the minds of Kenyans at large. The case is a case that depicts the interest of 41 people, senior judges, who are recommended by JSC in 2019 and then the president submitted, and the chief justice submitted a list to the president for one people. This issue brought the Maraga uh, Uhuru scenario that was in the country from 2019-2020 towards the, the end uh, of the Maraga's tenure. And these 41 people were not nominated yet. And then what happened is that shortly after BBI fell, some people out of these 41 people were appointed to be judges of different courts in Kenya. Individuals who had their hopes high but did not make in that cut include Agri Muchelule, George Odunga, well done career, Professor Joel Ngugi, and the late Harrison Ogweno Okeche, who passed on last October, may his soul rest in peace. 
These individuals did not make it to the cut. And so an interesting question arose that is it because Professor Joel Ngugi and Jojo Dunga, you know, because they took part actively in the BBI uh, decision, could it be possible that it's for that reason, that's why they did not make it to the cut? I want to categorically state that our interest tonight is not politics or what was done or what ought not to be done. But the wording of Article 166.61b, that the president shall appoint shall appoint the wording of that particular article of the constitution is shall so is it discretionary can the president choose who to appoint and who not to appoint what is the what is the how do we construe the meaning of that obligation of the government or of the president under article 166 b that among other questions are going to form the basis of our discussion tonight so with that i open um, the introduction of the panelists Let's start with Vanessa. Vanessa, are you in the house? Uh, very good evening, Max. Yes, I am. How are you? I'm good. Your volume is way low. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you get me correctly now? No, you can adjust maybe way better. Uh, let's see. Okay. That, that's that's about the farthest I can go, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's better. We can work with that one. Okay. So, so Vanessa, maybe because you're the first panelist in the house and we are picking this uh, conversation right on. Uh -huh. In your thoughts, um, can the president be sued on a personal capacity? Well, Max, um, when, when you say suing the president in a personal capacity, I think what comes to most of our minds uh, right now is presidential immunity. And um, mm -hmm. from my understanding of the law and, and, and my, you know, how I have dissected cases with regard to this, yes, indeed, I, I feel like the president can be uh, sued personally uh, as an individual. Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so the president can be sued in personally. Hold that thought there. Um, let's let's see the other panelist who is in the house. Um, Martin, hello. Uh, yes, sir. Good evening. I'm, I'm trying to assess your pitch so that when when your time come to speak, at least you'd be audible. Yeah. Can you hear me clearly? Okay. I I don't know whether it's my gadget or you are low. Oh, really? Let me let me try working on it and hope it gets better with time. Yeah, all right, all right, bro. Uh, Mayodi Odilia. Hi, Ogola. Hi, how are you, Mayodi? I'm fine. I'm in the house. Glad to be here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, also trying to assess your connection and thank and thank you for confirming in Masila Mudina. Yes, yes, Amin. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, Donald Watson. Donald Watson.
Maybe Don is not in yet. Mukua? Okay, thank you for that assessment. Uh, I had an uh, apology from Don that he joined around 7.20. So Don and Mukua are not in yet, but we are, st we are starting our discussion now. So let's get back to Ms. Vanessa Mungo on the same topic, on suing the president on a personal capacity. The constitution is clear under article 143.2 that the president will not be sued in any civil or criminal suit under the uh, during his tenure. I'm, I'm not, not quoting it verbatim, but that's what they're saying, that the president should not be sued civilly or criminally during his tenure. And as I was reading the case, the reason why they were or that the, the legislative history of that particular article was to give confidence in the office of the president. That's what they were saying in the case. So that the president makes decisions when he's confident. He makes decisions without having to look behind his shoulders, literally, thinking that whatever decision he makes will be challenged in a court of law. So maybe your thought process on the same. Vanessa. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Max, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, just a sec. Um, sorry, could you just come up again with that question? I, I was having a little internet problem. It's, it's okay. Uh, the question rather is this. You, mm -hmm. you have said in the introductory statement that the president can be sued on a personal capacity. And we're we just trying to learn here. So yeah. the constitution in a clearly under article 143 to be that mm -hmm. president at a coin power, uh, he should not be sued civilly or criminally. Now, Kisoma, the case that we're dealing with today, the appointment of judges case, which is Katiba Institute versus the president as the first respondent, the chief justice and the attorney general 2020. The president was sued on a personal capacity. So we are saying the president on a personal capacity to give him confidence in the office so that when he makes certain decisions, he's so confident mm -hmm. that no one is going to sue him for making those decisions. So tell us maybe why do you feel or why are you of the idea that or what are the scenarios when a president can be sued on a personal capacity? Um, thank you, Max. First of all, uh, let me just take you back to Article 143.2. And yes, I agree with you that a reading of Article 143.2 may lead one to a conclusion that, you know, the president enjoys absolute immunity. Uh, however, the courts were, in fact, the most recent ruling I can bring you to. They've been, let me, let me, let me dissect it this way. Um, the, the, the very first time we had a, the president being sued not even in his personal capacity. Let's focus on the cases of uh, Republic versus the um, Chief Justice and six others. That is in 2010 uh, with experte as Moejo Mataya. In this case, it was held that the president can be sued in his official capacity for constitutional and uh, legal transgressions. But in the case, in the most recent case, the BBI case, the case of David Ndi and others versus the Attorney General and others, they, they actually brought to uh, the attention of the court the fact that Article 143.2, actually, according to the, to the Attorney General, was given that same reading that you're bringing out, that the president enjoys absolute immunity. However, the court agreed with the petitioner in this situation. The petitioner was... was uh, 
was of the opinion that where, where the president acts in contravention of the constitution, he could be held personally responsible for any loss ensued. And the court agreed with the petitioner because it read, at, uh, it read Article 143.2 in tandem with Article 259 of the constitution that demands that a passive approach to constitutional interpretation is, is brought out to give effect to the objects, purposes, and values of the constitution. So that is why, yes, I, I still hold that. Uh, okay, okay, Miss Mugo. Yes. Can, can you hear me? Let, let me cut you short. Uh, I just, I just a little reminder. Some of our audience are not law students. Neither are they lawyers. And some of our audience um, have their parents or their siblings around them listening to us right now. So yes. when we go the constitutional or the article way, they get scared. <laughs> Yeah. Max, I'll, I'll tell you what should scare them more. What should scare them more is having a situation where the president has absolute immunity. What this could mean okay. then is that, and 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 I, I like the way you have, you know, the issue of presidential immunity goes back to feudal England, where, you know, the position was that the king does no wrong. That is the most, that is the best way I can put it to, mm -hmm. to the layman, that mm -hmm. king does no wrong. And, and even the United States Supreme Court seemed to, to hold this same environment in, uh, in uh, Nixon versus Fitzgerald that the reasoning behind absolute immunity of a president is that it is necessary to prevent interference with uh, how the president functions such that it prevents distraction from his duties. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you need to ask yourself why this same president we have had has been on the receiving end of, of such of such, um, you know, court proceedings. This is not the first Privilege. time we are, we are, yes, mm -hmm. yes. And, and of course, this, this could be, um, one could, could argue that, you know, it was, it was rather audacious and unimaginable even in the mm -hmm. uh, Kenyatta and Moi regimes to, to bring such issues even before a court of law, let alone to mention them. But at the same time, you have to realize mm -hmm. that the law progresses and, and the spirit of the constitution mm -hmm. of Kenya at this point is to make sure that there is, mm -hmm. um, there is certain limits to every office mm -hmm. created for the people. Mm -hmm. yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Mugo. Just uh, let's bring Ms. Odilia in in the same question. Ms. 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 Odilia Mayodi, what are your thoughts? Uh, are you agreeing with Ms. Mugo that a president uh, can be sued so that tomorrow when we feel that Uhuru um, Kenyatta, for example, showed up on a gathering during the curfew times, past curfew, we can go sue him for breaking the law if curfew was allowed, for example, to stay? Okay, um, I hold the same government with my fellow panelists that indeed the president can be sued on our personal capacity because mm -hmm. um, the office of the president has been, in, has been initiated by the constitution. That means that mm -hmm. he is directed by the constitution and in the event that he violates any obligation mm -hmm. set out in the constitution, mm -hmm. then he is answerable to the people. He is in that mm -hmm. office to serve the people and the sovereignty of the people will always mm -hmm. stand no matter what. And we can see we, he, he, uh, the, the, the function of the judiciary is to interpret the law. Uh, and we, as much we, as the Sodilia, I think we're losing you. Uh, that, that, that was a nice line of thought, but we're losing your connection. Please check on your connection.
Hi, Ogoila. Uh, my connections also had an issue because it's raining over here, but we had what Odilia Mayodi said that um, she agrees with Vanessa that a uh, president can be sued in a personal capacity. I'm trying to assess the panelists who sits on the same table tonight, who feels otherwise. Uh, Max, can, can you uh, hear me now? Evening, Max. I feel okay. okay, let's 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 have let's have Mukua go first, then Martin will come in. Yes, Mukua. Uh, good evening. Uh, my <laughs> name is Mukua Derek. Uh, I believe that the president may not be sued under certain circumstances, and uh, uh, this is my reason. First, uh, he represents the total sovereignty of the people as he holds the highest office in Kenya. And uh, not only that, he is also responsible for some key decisions concerning national security. Now, when you're talking about national security, you have to remember that there are some things that the public mm -hmm. uh, is not allowed to know, mm -hmm. you know for the sake of the public. Uh, for that reason, there are certain decisions that the president that mm -hmm. we make that uh, may seem to contradict the function of his office. And yes, the court may have a duty to, have a duty to declare that uh, those actions are illegal insofar as they observe them to be illegal. Uh, mm -hmm. But as it turns out, uh, uh, when, when even after this person leaves office, uh, if, if it, there happens to be a suit uh, uh, put against him, there may be secret courts put up and this matter will be investigated and he still won't be found liable. So there are certain instances where uh, the president may do acts, perform acts that may seem to contradict his function in office, yet he may he, he is still not be held liable. Thank you. So, so what is, what is your what is your position that there are instances, therefore, otherwise, when the president can be sued directly? Uh, my position is that the president cannot be enjoined in a suit mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of procedure. However, mm -hmm. this does not uh, bar the court from making a declaration about what the president ought to do. Because we have to remember that uh, whatever the court uh, does has to be enforceable. And insofar as policing powers go, this cannot be done in practice. What the court can do is only make declarations. And if the, this, the president does not follow, after he leaves mm -hmm. office, he may be prosecuted. And what the court bid, uh, declared before may be used as evidence against you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, okay. So Mukwa feels that the president should not be enjoined in a suit. As a respondent, like it happened in this case that we are digesting tonight, the I case and so on. Allah. Anyway, so Mukwa feels that there are instances that the president will make decisions that contradict what the public believes and that a court can only make an order to compel a president on what to do, but president should not be sued as a respondent in a suit. Martin. Yes, Max. Um, I hope you can hear me now better. Yes, and clearly. That you can also see me. We can also see you. <laughs> 
Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for, for this opportunity. I'm really happy to be part of this intellectual discourse. Um, I'll say first that I think President Kenyatta has made most of us judicial activists by, by virtue of the fact that there has been a lot of violation of the constitution and um, disobedience of court orders and contempt of court during his tenure. So even those of us who believe in presidential immunity as a doctrine in, 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 in law have had to grapple with sometimes not agreeing with it entirely. I will say this, I think um, in the 18th century when the French social political philosopher Charles Louis Baron de Montesquieu coined separation of powers as a doctrine, he did not countenance a situation where any of the three arms of government, that is executive, judiciary, or legislature, would be at war with each other. He expected that there would be interdependence in the performance of their functions, and that there would be better government if the three arms of government are able to keep each other in check through checks and balances. And I think the possibility of having a president who can be sued, whether in his personal, his or her personal or official capacity, in itself seeks to portray the separation of powers. I believe in presidential immunity myself, because of course I agree with you to the extent that the performance of the roles of the president require peace and maybe a quiet tenure, I want to perform best. However, I believe that the impregnable doctrine of absolute presidential immunity was retired with the former constitution or with the independence constitution. And that now the constitution of Kenya 2010 provides citizens with an opportunity to see to it that the president is kept to account or is put to account in the case that they do something wrong. And I would lastly refer just to the very recent, not very recent, no, I think it's grown a bit old, the BBI judgment. And I'll go back to the High Court before we speak about the Court of Appeal. The High Court, I believe, pronounced itself brightly when it came to that question. Because looking at Article 143, Sub 3 of the Constitution of Kenya 2010, the president or actually any person who holds public office is protected indeed from legal action. However, this protection is in respect of anything done or not done in the exercise of the powers that they have conferred under this constitution. The rationale for this basically is to give them nice or comfortable time in office. Most importantly, we need to also put in mind a scenario where we'll have a president or a state official who during their service embarks on a mission that clearly violates the constitution or is even destructive to the nation. At such a point, it will only be prudent that such a person be stopped in his or her tracks rather than for us to wait for the end of their tenure for them to be brought to question. Because maybe by the time they leave office, the country could have plunged into chaos. So in conclusion, I think that in such circumstances, any person should be allowed to invoke the jurisdiction of the court and sue the president, actually, whether in his personal or even official capacity. 
I think in whichever capacity such a person is sued will depend on the nature of the violation or the threatened violation and will certainly depend on the circumstances of the case. But while I am a lover of presidential immunity, I wouldn't take the doctrine to be in its absolute sense. I think that will be the beginning of a dictatorship and it would be dangerous for any country. Thank you. Well, I, I pick a few, a few points from Martin that I agree with. The fact that there is going to be a set of tyranny and tyranny is defined by Longful, if you read that case actually, that a state of exercise of power where the citizens have no rights. So there is a possibility of having that state of tyranny if we have absolute presidential immunity. However, it also brings in a certain aspect of uh, a contradictory ideology when it says that uh, a president cannot be sued civilly or criminally for acts done or not done while in uh, while in office, the, the exact reading of uh, Article 143.2. So it therefore means that maybe, for example, if a president commits uh, a crime, like um, let's say for the for example uh, the president steals so he decides to steal a watch of a cabinet minister so that's an act that he has not done in office maybe they went to party with this cabinet minister in sabina joy and he decided to steal his watch so there's a, a room where this president can actually be sued civilly he's still a president do we mean that the veil of suing the president is just to the extent of his duties in office? Or is it a veil that cuts across that once you are a president, you're not going to be sued until you are out? I think, Martin, you can come back for a minute to address that before Masila chips in. Yeah, I can see my fellow panelists, Ms. Vanessa Mugo has her video on. It's always nice. I think I would also want to encourage our... <laughs> Uh, colleagues here, if you can, it's good to have a video on so that we also get to see you. Anyway, in response to that, um, the president is a symbol of nation. And we all agree that the president stands at a point where they are very high up. Yeah, But I believe Avi Dicey, even in the conceptualization of the rule of law, to have a society that is equal, or at least believes in the perception of equality, of the members of society in a sense that it really matters not what your position is in society. If you are wrong, then you must still be treated like any other wrong member of the society. And the basis for this argument for me will be that we are not here to put a president, for example, at a pedestal simply because we want them to perform their duties. As I said, the purpose of the law sometimes is to look at the most difficult of circumstances is to look at circumstances where we'll have a rogue president, you know, someone who acts in sheer impunity, goes beyond violating the constitution, goes beyond uh, disobeying court orders, and even goes to the extent of, you know, perpetrating a genocide to his people or her people. In such a situation, we cannot rely on this doctrine of presidential immunity to say that this is a symbol of national unity. This is a person we expect to perform duties comfortably or quietly. I believe that even though we respect our presidents, we must stand for what is right and they must always be brought to question as persons of high moral integrity in society. And they must always be questioned whenever they go wrong. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that clarification. That was a sound one. Masila, and about the video thing, yeah, your point. I think this panelist should have their videos on. 
<laughs> we are still on the same hi everyone am i audible yeah 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 yes yeah, so i'm in the background yeah so i'm in mombasa so in the prayers i don't know what you can do about that let me let me see where i can it's okay it's okay we don't mind Okay, Masila is gone for a minute. Don, Don, do you think the president can be sued on a personal level? On a personal capacity? Let me make my video also on properly. Yeah. Yeah. Don. Don. Yeah, Max, I'm a bit indisposed at the moment. Can I get back to you in any time? Oh, it's it's okay. I, okay. I think I think Masila should come back in now. Masila. I hope this is better now. Masila? Am I audible? Yeah. Okay, okay. So I concur with what Martin Kiyoko and Vanessa Mugu have brought forth. Indeed, the president should be sued in his personal capacity. And even the provisions that they have given and the problem is when people talk about um, presidential immunity, there are two things that which Vanessa Mugu has brought forth. There's the issue, and that you also said, there's the issue of um, that the president should be able to, you know, perform his duties without having that lingering fear that he might be sued at any time. But then again, there's also the issue of, you know, absolute immunity and the, the, it may bring breed tyranny or rather what you guys have brought forth. In a bit to balance that, my opinion or rather what I opine is that, um, yes, indeed the president should enjoy immunity, but not absolute immunity. It should be limited in that the immunity that the, the president should be sued on certain instances, for instance, matters concerning public interest, which the court actually held in, in Katiba Institute versus the attorney general. Yeah, basically that's the opinion. Yeah, the president should be should enjoy immunity, yes, but it should it be absolute. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, Masila, for that. So that, that, that was an opening question, but it took so much of our time, though I think you've heard what cuts across when we bring in the general um, uh, audience contribution, we will still go over these questions. I just want us to first have a brief questions discussed by these panelists, and then we open our floor for free discussion. So the second question is from Article 166, 6B. The wording is, the president shall. 
But what happens we see is that uh, the way I told you guys, Agri Muchelule, George Dunga, Weldon Korir, Professor Joel Ngugi, Harrison Obueno Okeche. These are individuals that were not appointed after the nomination list was submitted to the president. So the question that we rather want to pose to the panelists tonight is the appointing duty of the president under Article 166.6b um, discretional. Is it discretional? Is it just a ceremonial function? Mokua? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Max. And um, we ask, yes, am I audible? Yes, we are very audible. Did you get my question? Am I, am I audible? Yes. Oh, I love the... yes. Yes, I got the question. Yeah, proceed, bro. I got the question, and uh, I don't say this, but one, the president re represents the, he is the embodiment of the power of the people. Uh, for that reason, you cannot say that his role is merely uh, ceremonial. As much as his public participation in, at every uh, point in, in, in the judicial appointment process, the, the president is the one giving it legitimacy, right? Yeah. So we have to look at this appointment process as a mechanism whereby uh, there, is, there is the process that gives birth to something is the one that performs this action. The fact that Act 166 says the president shall, it means that, sorry, the, the am I audible? Yeah, very, very. So the, the fact that Article 166 says the president, the fact that Article 166 says the president shall, it means that the president is already bound, is, he has been bound, like he's part of a mechanism, and he has no option but to submit to the process that has come to him, you see. Now, that is the way, and, and we, should, we should interpret the constitution according to its natural, to its natural, wording and, and that is the proper way to, to look at this uh, provision. Thank you. Perhaps I shall uh, leave room for questions. I don't know whether Max is able to hear us. Yes, yes. Uh, Miss Mugo? Uh, Miss Mugo, on the same. I'm just saying, I was telling Mokua that there is no need for questions yet. These people are in here, they're listening, and these people are smart. Once you're done with the panel discussion, they're going to question each and every panelist. I know they're doing that. So I'm asking Miss Mugo if she agrees with Mokua on the position that the function of the president and the wording shall does not mean a thing at all. It only means that the president is bounded by law, by the constitution, but then there's still room for discretion to decide who to appoint and who not to appoint under that wording. Ms. Mugo. Okay. So um, my, my thinking of that is uh, just a second. 
Kennedy Mwitosi, please uh, cough when your microphone is off, kindly. Yes, Ms. Mugo, proceed. Yes, um, I, I think I agree with him to a certain extent, especially because the constitution does not per se allocate uh, the president any power, specifically in any article to, or, or, or the mandate to, to maybe comment or review a decision made by the Judicial Service Commission. So to this extent, I, I tend to lean on the fact that his role when it comes to appointment of judges is rather ceremonial. Uh, I, I tend to think that the wording shall um, is, is, is really binding on him. He, he, Chief Justice, okay, the former Chief Justice Maraga, when he was asked about this uh, situation when there was a stalemate, I think late, uh, early last year, his, his position was that the constitution does not pronounce or does not give him the mandate to even comment on what goes on after these names are submitted to him. His function is to organize for uh, how these people are going to be, uh, what do we call it, appointed. Uh, that is where he comes in. But at the same time, um, I'd, I'd like to critique that position. It is the attorney general in the, in, in, uh, in the case said that um, the president as the head of state and the head of government has, another exclu has exclusive authority, yes? Uh, to appoint judges in Kenya on behalf of the citizenry and in accordance with the constitution. And in thus doing, and in thus saying, by, by failing to appoint these judges, he was not refusing to perform his duty as president to appoint them, but was merely taking steps to ensure he does so in accordance with the purposes and objects of the constitution. Um, so there's that, there's that balance that maybe he was doing it for the greater good. I mean, he's, um, He's there for the citizenry. So maybe the name submitted, he needed to look at them. But even if this argument was going to hold, I think in this situation, we cannot see um, goodwill, allow me to say that, because um, his, his, he, uh, the, the, the excuse, rather the reasons he gave for not appointing these judges were, were rather dubious. I don't know what anyone has to say about that, but I think it's it's really cut across. I am not fully settled on one side, but from the wording of the constitution, I tend to think that his role here is basically ceremonial. You're given the names, appoint them, because um, the JSC has already done what it is mandated by the constitution to do, and so long as they have followed the correct procedure, uh, the, the interviews and the vetting were done transparently, they were done in accordance with, you know, the spelled out procedure, Everything has been done, and it is the assumption that by the time we are bringing you these names, these are the best people. So it's not up to you to now go and do your own separate, um, you know, investigation. But okay. even if that could hold, I think in this situation, mm -hmm. it's, it really cannot. Well, okay, before we bring another panelist in, actually, let's just explore the same thought pattern, that there are three arms of government that coexist independently. So the judiciary decides under the body that is mandated under the judiciary, that's the judicial, uh, under the constitution, pardon me, that is the Judicial Services Commission. They approve, they recommend, then they forward this name to the president. Now, the president, being the executive arm of government, comes in and says, you know what, six of these people you have sent to me should not be judged. 
largest. Okay, is the president, as Mukua says, he holds the biggest aspirations of the people, but shouldn't there be a separation of power, like is the executive? Access to justice is for the people of Kenya against another person of Kenya, including even the president. So if the president has a say on who sits as a judge, then tomorrow I feel as a Kituo Chasheria or Zakatiba Institute that there are rights of the people that have been infringed. So we have taken a public interest litigation against the government, government before the Supreme Court. Shouldn't it, uh, doesn't, doesn't it look clearly that definitely the president's judges that he appointed outside the others that he didn't appoint will definitely make a judgment in favor of the president? Martin, what do you have to say on a president having a say on who becomes the judge? Okay, yeah, thank you. I, I agree with you to a certain extent that the president should have a say on who becomes a judge. And, and I say this not because I do not understand the independence of the judiciary, but because of what I had mentioned before. Yeah, The principle of separation of powers calls for checks and balances on one hand, as well as interdependence between the different institutions of government. However, well, I agree with you to the extent that the president should have a say. I direct you to the provision. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I forget it. I'm, I'm trying to find it on my constitution. On the composition of the Judicial Service Commission. And I think this is one of the arguments that was made. That the president is represented in the Judicial Service Commission by, is it two or four persons, who are actually presidential appointees to represent the public service as well as- We are kind of um, losing youth. That is the youth, sorry? Oh yeah. So my point in this case is that the president is indirectly represented in the decision making organ of the judiciary, which is the Judicial Service Commission. And therefore, in the process of vetting the judges before approval of their names, the president has a hand. In the case that there is difficulty in um, agreeing to the appointment of one of the persons who are before the Judicial Service Commission, then the president at that point in time can put up a challenge or ask questions about the integrity of these people. You see, the problem with the move that we have currently is that the president appears to have made this decision as an afterthought. And many people believe that it comes out of you know, the BBI judgment and some of the decisions that have been rendered by this six judges that were never appointed. So while the president is rightly invoking his prerogative as the head of the executive arm of government in trying to check the judiciary, he does so fast in a way that is not permitted. And therefore he invokes malice in his decision. And if it is something that he actually believed in that these people were not competent, then the right time in my opinion would have been during the vetting process before these people are approved to him. Otherwise, I take the role of the president, just like Vanessa, to be one that is ceremonial. Just like when we have a bill uh, presented to the president for assent, if the president doesn't take it back to parliament and it passes a certain number of days, then it becomes a bill. And I think it's the same logic that we should apply here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, maybe this Odilia? Okay, Max. Um... I will invite everyone to note that the wording in the constitution is the president shall and not must. So as much as I agree with my fellow panelists that indeed 
it is ceremonial and everything, but I believe that him being the emblem of the sovereignty of the people, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> has the role to question, as Martin Kyoko said, has the role to, to take back the process to the Judicial Service Commission to vet and to investigate the integrity of, of the other members who are supposed to be appointed in the in the in the bench so yes um the the the, the president's role is not ceremonial at all alone entirely but he has a role and it is not for procedure alone but you know he he has he is he is the executive he is the head of executive and he has to exercise his power with you know he he does not do that alone but he, he we should also recognize that he is he is given he has legal advisors and that is not a decision that he he arrived with his thought entirely but invited other quarters that that thought for the good and for the best interest of the people of Kenya Okay, thank you. So we have we have two factions. We have Vanessa and and Martin uh, strongly believing, and, and I think they make a good point from their view that there are representatives of the executive already in JSC. So that if the president has an issue with any of the judges recommended by JSC, that issue needs to be resorted in-house before it comes to the appointing. So that on the appointing, it becomes a ceremony. On the other side, Mayodi and uh, Mokua also are making a very strong point on their view that the president represents more than just a signature. And that as a head of the executive, and as Mukua said earlier on, there are certain decisions that have to be made that we don't have to know. That's, that's a discussion that the audience will jump on later on, I know. So the president is not a mere signature. The president is a lot more than that. And so when it comes to the appointing of judges, the president must have a say. Let's see what Mutina thinks. I wish we could have heard what Donald Watson thinks, but he's yeah, still on. I'm, I'm, uh, no, okay. I'm here now. Donald, go for it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, good evening to you all. Um, good evening. To you. I think. Uh, okay. I think I will take uh, divergent views on this matter. I'm actually split between the two fac factions because um, of different aspects. First, on uh, the language used in the constitution, and uh, I would like to borrow uh, a speech by I think it was Lenaola, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court. Once uh, on, a, he was actually talking about the position of advisory opinions, whether advisory opinions are binding or not. And he said, "How can a, an opinion or a recommendation be binding upon upon a person? It's just an opinion, and and that is in as far as it goes." So uh, a reading of this uh, Article One Sixty Six One, uh, it says the president shall appoint uh, the chief justice and whatever with the recommendation of the JSC. So uh, my first view would be how then would a recommendation to the president be binding to him? Yeah, the wording used, used uh, is shall, but it still remains a recommendation. Uh, the second view I take is, yeah, the position is uh, the, the appointing power is ceremonial uh, for reasons I think Mr. Kiyoko has alluded to, because uh, I think it was in the case of Kwasame and uh, 
there were some versus uh, the G where they had uh, refused to. Am I audible? Max, am I am I audible? Max, I cannot quite get you. Uh, Max. Max, am I audible? So, when I... Okay, I, I, yeah, okay. I think Max, you are, you are the one with the issue. I thought I'm not audible enough. I think one of the audience, one person from the audience has told me I'm audible enough. Okay, uh, then I will proceed. And uh, and I said, uh, I want to agree with uh, Mr. Kyoko. Uh, he said, uh, I think he actually alluded to a, a judge, uh, to a segment of the judgment in which they said his, the president's representatives in the JSC are the two persons representing public service and uh, i think the, the the vetting process is quite a rigorous process carried out by the jsc so by the time these names reach the president i think it's a final list so there is no there is no point in weathering the list or trying to cherry pick from uh from the list or whatever and uh, my final point would be uh and uh, it's 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 something that uh, the court made mention of they said uh, the president uh, did not Appoint the six, the six, the, the, okay, actually, okay, there are the six persons left out from the list of appointed judges. The president cited uh, the issue of integrity and all that, but uh, the court noted that uh, no evidence was adduced to that effect. So I think it was actually an afterthought from the president, and I do agree with uh, Mr. Kyoko on that point. Uh, I think that is all I have to say for now. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Don. I don't know whether you can hear me. Yeah, thank yeah, you, John. Ah, uh, thank you. Ah, uh, that, that 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 was that was a brief, good one. So I'm not going to bring Masila on this one because um I'm starting the next question with Masila. Our our audience are very ready. I'm seeing Kevin Bet from the Kenya School of Law. Very very ready. Yes, guys, you're going to come in, but let's get done with the panelists first. And then we have an open window discussion. The third question was rather, what is the format or the procedure of appointing judges? What is the, the format of appointing judges? So that the public can understand from what point does the president come in? Ms. Mayodi. Uh, Mr. Okola, just one second, if I may. Yeah. Uh, I really apologize for hijacking your discussion and um, I apologize again to the other panelist who is just about to start speaking. Uh, yes. I, I, my, my name is Grace Maina. I am very happy to be here, but unfortunately I have to log off from the call and I thought if you could just indulge me for one minute, then I can let you proceed. Is that in order? Yes, Mama, you are so allowed. You are so allowed, Mama. Thank proceed. you. Um, Thank you so much. Again, I apologize to all the panelists for hijacking the discussion. But uh, I'd first want to say thank you so much, Mr. Kola, for having me. I'm very proud to see that 
all the young minds that I worked so hard to um, to mentor while at Jquarter doing such an amazing job at this. And I have followed the discussion for the past hour, and I, I have to say I am quite impressed to see, you know, the level of understanding and comprehension of the law. And even as I log off, I just I just want to throw a spanner in the works and raise some of the issues that I think from the first two questions. Maybe as you continue, even as the audience will be coming in, can be addressed. And particularly, I was happy with the first question on the question of presidential immunity, since that was actually what I did for my dissertation. And a lot of you seem to lean onto the side of um, a president should not have immunity. But as I would tell you in a moot court session, I would ask you then why is it absolute immunity? What was the purpose, what was the intention of the constitution in saying that there should actually be absolute immunity? And someone, some of you have attempted to make the argument that you know when the president is doing his work, then he shouldn't you know, have something hanging over him as a court case, but again, he should not be allowed to have presidential immunity. And just to broaden the scope of the case that you are reading, I'd also want you to think about it. If you do say that a president should have should not have absolute immunity, then what happens in the context? Would you then be okay with the ICC coming and trying your president for various crimes, or would you not? You know, because when it comes to the questions of immunity, you cannot fail to look at it also from the perspective of sovereignty. And the sovereignty of a nation sits with the president in this country. So what, what then was the constitution trying to remedy? What was the issue trying to fix? And as the, judici as, as the judiciary was making that decision, and they did say that the president can be sued in their personal capacity with regards to issues on violation of the constitution, what reasons did the, did the, did the, um, did the, did the court give? Did they just say that he has violated the constitution and that you should sue him? Did they give a system? And I remember one of the panelists quoted Winterski and saying that the concept of separation of powers may not have foreseen um, the, the whole issue of the conflict in the three arms of government. But actually a reading of that jurisprudence will tell you that that is exactly why there is a separation of powers to make sure that there is independence of the three arms of government to make their decision and from that independence, you can then proceed to have a system of checks and balances to make sure everyone is in line. So that's my thoughts on the first question. And I really encourage all of you to be bold. And as you make your discussions, really don't be afraid of stepping on any toes. This is one of those platforms where you're allowed to be as radical as possible and to share your thoughts um, on, on any of these issues. So I hope even as the audience is listening to this, that as you continue, you will raise it. Very quickly on the second issue, I'm happy how you have sort of covered this because there's a division on the panel. You're not all just leaning to one side. And that's the, you know, that's what a good debate looks like. But look at the constitution and look at what courts have said with the wording of the constitution and it says shall. It is not, um, as some of you have said, it is merely ceremonial, but you also have to look at the conflict of laws. When you have the constitution, it is said to be the supreme law of the land. But, where the con but you have to also remember the constitution is just a skeleton. The meat of what feeds the law, the meat of what enforces the constitution is the statute passed by parliament. So you cannot have this discussion without looking at what the Judicial Service Commission Act says and what it talks about with regard to the appointment of the judges. 
again, I know you're also avoiding a political discussion, but in this country, you cannot really remove yourself from that. You also have to think, what is the political climate? By the time they say that there's issues of integrity, you have to go back and ask yourself, when people say the judiciary is corrupt, is that a well-founded claim? Is it a claim that um, is, is merely perceived bias of the judiciary? So I, I encourage all of you, even as you discuss this, remember the constitution is one source of law in this country. Judicial president is another source of law. I encourage you to read widely, to read broad, broadly, to be broad in how you um, debate some of these issues. And with that, I, I really want to thank you for the time that you've given me to speak, Mr. Kola. Thank you for having me. Um, I will be fully on next week. I know that uh, I'll be part of the discussion next week and I'm very much excited that I got to experience just a little bit before next week. And I hope you have questions. Again, thank you so much. I wish all of you a very blessed night. Keep reading the law, keep being the very best versions of yourself and I'm very proud of all of you. I hope you're all blessed. Have a good night. I think, thank you so much, Grace. Thank you for that, the insight, the explanation and all that. And we are waiting to have you next week so that we can have a fruitful, expansive discussion. Maybe just before you leave, um, Nasserian, Nasserian Kasura is one lady in the law family that looks up to you so much. So maybe a hello from you to Nasserian would mean a lot tonight. Oh, um, yes, I know Nasera. Um, I've, I've met her online. Uh, just, just on that note, thank you so much for all the people who watch my channel on YouTube and for all of you who actually reach out and talk to me. Thank you, Nasera. Actually, uh, I've, I've seen your message. Um, yeah, so please keep, keep doing your very best. Um, if you want to reach out to me, please get in touch with Mr. Ogola. I'll give you my number. Uh, I think I, 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 I'm very available. Ogola, am I available? <laughs> when I'm not busy, um, I, I do try and get, get back to everyone. So, yes. Okay, thank you, Grace. We'll be holding Grace Maina here next week. She'll be a panelist for our Huduma Number case alongside Quinta Chien from uh, Kenyatta University and the controversial Kirumburu. We'll also have a guest advocate, the director of Kituwa Chasheria, Dr. Annette. We'll be in that panel. It will be a fire ladies panel. And we thank you so much, Grace, for showing up tonight. As we proceed with this discussion, let's pick a few things that Mama has told us. That it's a free platform to talk about how you feel and that we need to examine everything we say along the wording of the Constitution so that we understand it deeply. Thank you for that. So we are proceeding with uh, the panel questions. There are only two more to go so that we open this discussion to the public. And the second one was, because we are talking about appointment of a one judge's case, could maybe one panelist take this one to tell the public how judges appoint, are appointed, the bodies that are responsible for appointing judges, the procedure until the point, uh, until the, the time, not, not for appointing, pardon me, the bodies that are responsible for that nomination, verification, and all that of judges until the appointment is done by the president. Ms. Mayogi, Odindo Yoga, please mute you. Odindo Yoga. Allah. <laughs> Mayodi. Mayodi. 
Well, it seems like Miss Mayodi is, is, is not in. I don't know whether it's reconnected or something. Don. Watson. For a moment, I questioned whether I'm the one audible. All right. Don Watson and uh, Ms. Mayodi are not in. Martin? These panelists are clever. They're shying away from the question of the procedure and how judges are appointed. Maybe let's use this to break ice a little. I'm having a lot of uh, text messages directly and even in this platform from people who want to speak. So let's start with uh, Kevin Kibet. Kevin Kibet is joining us from the Kenya School of Law. Yes, bro. Kibet. Yes, counsel. Yes. So what was the question? There was no question. You wanted to speak. You raised your hand. We're giving you a platform, bro. Oh, I thought, oh, okay, for the appointment of judges, I will comment. But now I wanted to comment about the three things that you've already discussed. Yeah. First was presidential immunity, and then the second one is for Article 166, and then the that, that one for the process, procedure of appointment of judges. Now, for the first yeah. one, uh, whether the president enjoys absolute immunity. Well, according mm -hmm. to the constitution, when you read that is Article 143 of the constitution, there are two things, there's the criminal and, and the civil. Now mm -hmm. the question is, for the criminal, I think it is clear that the president is protected from any criminal suit. But now for the civil, mm -hmm. that's where there is a debate for the civil, mm -hmm. whereby mm -hmm. the issue of the personal capacity and the official capacity of the, mm -hmm. the president. Mm -hmm. now, now, when you read that specific article, as the people have discussed, it says that uh, mm -hmm. some of them have said that the president has absolute immunity. But now th there is an important mm -hmm. thing that we need to consider in that specific uh, article. That is powers mm -hmm. that has been conferred under this constitution. Now, the question is whether any violation of the constitution is... Now, the question is whether a violation of the constitution can you sue the president? Now, because, because the president mm -hmm. took an order to protect the constitution, and mm -hmm. yes, it was, a, it was in relation to the constitution. Now the question is whether mm -hmm. there is absolute immunity because a violation of the constitution, it means that the president is not adhering to the specific law that he swore to protect, he swore to protect. Mm -hmm. But now, but now, in relation to this specific case, this one for the Constitution, this one for the Katiba Institute, now the, 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 case, the issue before the court was about the appointment of judges. Mm -hmm. Now, when you read that, now the question is whether the president has, whether the president has the role of the appointment of judges, judges and that is in Article 166. Mm -hmm. 66, which, which says that the president shall appoint judges. Now, when the president violates that specific article, can you sue the president? Can you sue that? Now that is the question. When the president has violated that article 166, that one for the appointment, 
is it something outside his role in the constitution? That is the only, is it something outside the constitution? And also, is it something that you can sue the president? You see that now that- Okay. Because when now- so, so, Because now in that- Okay, let me, let, let me, cut, you, let me cut you short because you're coming back and also in the interest of time, okay. uh, I'm seeing Alvin Kubas who has raised his hand. So as the panelist prep over that question, your analysis of whether the particular uh, determination of whether president can be sued on a personal capacity is subject to the case in hand. Like in his, for our academic uh, freedom or for our, yeah, our academic exercise, we are trying to analyze, come a president, the immunity, should it be sound like the Nikoko constitution that the president is immune or should, be, should there be limits? So um, I'm liking the points you are raising, but hold the thought there for a while I'm bringing you in. Alvin Kubasu. Thank you. Can you kindly confirm that you can hear me? Yes, and your hand is raised. Thank you. We can hear you. Thank you. So I wanted to, uh, to, to weigh in on that issue of the, the, the appointment of judges. And so, okay. I, and, and I like, I, I like the, the level of arguments that you are raising in, but here I am thinking from a point of, first of all, this is, uh, we are having, it's like a sibling rivalry. So among us, among us, us three, that is the three arms of the government. The constitution does not say who is the eldest, who is the youngest. So we have to fight for our space in quotes. And then here we have a place where we are trying to say how the judiciary has interpreted to say that the word shall, what it means, and the position of appointment of the judges. But I'd just like us to yes. take a step back and understand something, which I like the fact that Martin alluded to it, the fact of uh, the separation of power. Mm -hmm. So if we are to agree with that point of, actually once the JSC has, has uh, nominated the president, he's only supposed to come and say, thank you for doing the good job. There you have your judges and it's barely it. Then where is that Where is that separation of powers coming in? Because the judiciary has that point of saying, we want to, we want to, to vet our persons who become judges and we will nominate them and you will only accept them. So where is separation of power coming in? Because unlike a bill, where it can actually, the judiciary can mm. declare to be unconstitutional. What happens if mm. these persons that uh, have been nominated by the JSC, they are not fit for to hold office? Ideally, there's mm. no other place because the, the parliament cannot debate them. But then also, mm. something mm. else to take note of is when we say that the president actually has representative in the JSC, you know, the mm -hmm. president cited, I mean, I agree that there must be, maybe it's an afterthought, but then when he says that he has mm -hmm. some integrity issues, these persons who represent mm -hmm. the president in the JSC, are they privy to the information mm -hmm. that the president gets from the, from the NIS, for example, mm -hmm. the NIS, National Intelligence, whatever, something, are they privy to that, to that mm -hmm. information? Then it, it begs mm -hmm. a lot of questions because he might have represent, representatives, mm -hmm. but then they are not receiving the information that he is receiving, which maybe is supposed to be to be tabled to his desk only. So when all is said and done, I mm -hmm. think it's also something that not to look at it from the point of the judiciary being a victim also, but then also from the point of each one of them is fighting for the space and therefore each one of them ought to be given that subjective and objective outlook as far as this issue is concerned. Thank you. 
thank, thank you for that. And maybe just to bring in the last audience before we bring our panelists back. Uh, Kirunguru talked about something in checks and balances in the in the in the chat. So Kirunguru, after listening to people have these uh, different ideas on the same, and being the fact that you are forming panel next week, um, I'm delighted to bring you in. What was your issue on checks and balances on the same, Kiru? Kiru. Kiru Mburu. Uh, so maybe Ruben is not close to his gadget, but when he does, we'd like to hear what um, he had to say on the checks and balances issue. Because I think Alvin Kubasu has drawn the line that in case, or even though there's the checks and balances between arms of government, the president sits at a seat that is more privileged with information. And maybe we need to look beyond just the judiciary being a victim and analyze certain aspects of management of government that include, you know, privy information that reaches the president even before it reaches its, his representatives in the in the JSC. Well, with that, we are bringing our panelists back to the discussion and we will bring the audience in back at large. That was just an icebreaker. The third question I asked was an outline on how the judges are being um how the judges, the procedure of, of nominating, verifying, and appointing the judges. But I'll keep that question for later. So we have this question that what is the extent of the supervisory function of the high court in relation to equal jurisdiction courts? This, this was a question I wanted to grapple with these panelists because as you read the, the case, the Katiba Institute versus President uh, Chief Justice in AG 2020. Uh, a certain aspect of the Adrian Kamoto case comes in a lot. That's for the people who read the case. And one thing was that the decision in the Adrian Kamoto case was also a decision of another high court. So the supervisory function comes in as a contention. So this is actually a point of study that yes, the high court is in, is in a place of privilege as well to supervise decisions of lower courts, all lower courts. But the high court, according to the rule of stare decisis, cannot supervise the court of appeal and the Supreme Court. So back to the panelists, what are your thoughts? Are there instances when the high court can supervise decisions of another high court or decisions of the labor law courts or the decision of the environmental court or does the supervisory function of the high court only vertical and there is not even one instance when it can be applied vertically? Watson. Donald Watson. Yeah, Max. Max. Yeah. Okay, I think when you asked the, the former question, I was having trouble with my internet uh, it's okay bro. i apologize yeah so okay um i think uh, the question is uh, the extent of the supervisory function of the high court in relation to equal jurisdiction courts um yeah my opinion on this uh, is quite simple um i i think uh, a reading of uh, which article it is um the system of the courts 165 Mm -hmm. That is 162, 162. Uh, I want to okay. 162 uh, as read together with uh, 165. 
because uh, you've, you've, met, you've made mention of uh, both the Environment and Land Court and uh, the Labor Relations Court, yeah? If I go to clear. Max? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so my, my point is... Yeah, so my point is really quite simple, yeah? It's quite simple here. Uh, these are courts of, of, uh, of similar stature. They're, they're the same status. As, as that of the high court. So I, I don't see how, how the, the high court can now start supervising or, or exercising the supervisory jurisdiction over courts of similar stature. And uh, so I think these, these uh, mandate or these, these jurisdiction under, uh, contemplated under Article 165, um, yeah, 165, it will be yeah, 165. I think it only applies to subordinate courts. I think that is my position. Oh, there, there was a concern that yeah. uh, the, the people were trying to enforce the decisions that were made in the... Let, let me get that clearly. But be, be, before I shoot that specific question back to you, let's see what yeah. the other panelists have to, have to say on the same. I'm bringing in Ms. Masila. Masila? Yes, I'm saying, yeah. may I respond mm -hmm. to the question that was raised first before I proceed to the other yes. name of the argument? Sure. Yes, someone has raised about um, separation of power. And I think when we're having this discussion, uh, you know, on appointments, recommendations, and all, the, all those words that will be thrown around, it is important for us to differentiate between the judiciary and the judicial service commission. The, um, mm -hmm. the recommendation is done by the judicial service commission and not the judiciary. And if you appreciate the composition mm -hmm. of the judiciary of the sort of the judicial service commission, you understand mm -hmm. that the two are very different and are established by different mm -hmm. provisions of the constitution. Now, using that um, mm -hmm. context, it is, it is important to mm -hmm. know that so separation of power is only limited to arms of government. And therefore, we cannot term, or we cannot, not separation of power, I'm saying checks and balances. So checks and balances is a principle that's only limited to arms of government. And Judicial Service Commission is not an arm of, an, it's not an arm of government. Yes. And you asked about the format of appointing or rather the procedure of appointing judges. I mean, a proper reading of Article 166.1, it gives uh, 1A and then 1B. The first limb is about the CJ, the Chief Justice, and then the Deputy. Now they're recommended by the Judicial Service Commission, approved by the National Assembly, sorry, and then appointed by the president, and which I still opine that he or she plays a very ceremonial function, yes. And then now the second limb of all other judges shall be recommended by the Judicial Service Commission and then now duly appointed, uh, appointed by the president. Then the last limb is what is the extent of the supervisory function of the high court in relation to equal jurisdiction of the court? And then and it is my opinion that the article or rather the 
Article 165, sub Article 6 and 7 of the Constitution is very clear that the supervisory jurisdiction only extends to subordinate courts. So it cannot exercise, the High Court cannot exercise its supervisory jurisdiction upon another court of equal jurisdiction. Yes, thank you. Okay, sound on from Masila, the, the, the breakdown of the three points. Uh, I'm having a message chat from John Muasa, uh, was the court sitting in a supervisory court on an enforcement court uh, or an enforcement. John Muasa, can you just come clearly to ask the panelists this one? Because um, I saw your message on the chat. Enemies from ladies and gentlemen will be receiving uh, we'll be capturing these very topics we are capturing, but on a senior position as an advocate and as a member of parliament. So before then, even before we delve in as audiences, I'm trying to rush so that we get all these issues that we wanted today fully addressed. And we also chip in your ideas so that we learn from you guys. So Mr. Muasa. Hello, John Mwasa. Uh, uh, Hello, John Mwasa. Yes, can you hear me? Where are you joining us from? Hello. Where are you joining us from? Oh, I'm joining you from Machakos, exactly, to be precise. And um, so my question was there. Okay, proceed, yes. proceed. Ah, okay. Uh, so it was necessitated by the question you asked on whether the High Court can sit as a supervisory court on the decisions of another high court somewhere. So my question was in the case that we are discussing, was the court sitting as a supervisory court or an enforcement court? Was it sitting to enforce the orders that had been given in Adrian Kamoto? So that was my question. I hope it's clear now. Kyo. I'm trying to get Kyoko the same, but Mokua Bichang is in the house. Mokua, Adrian has a question. In the decision that we're dealing with, was the High Court sitting in as an enforcement court or as a supervisory court in relation to that Adrian Kamoto case? The Adrian Kamoto case was the first case that raised the issue of appointing, uh, appointing judges, appointment judges case. Are you in? Yes, I'm very in, Mark Sogola. Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to be trying to be short. Uh, so, number one, uh, to answer the first question, I'll, I'll start with a story. Once upon a time, uh, Jesus was asked by Pharisees, uh, there's this lady we found committing adultery. What should we do? Now, in that story, if Jesus would have said, stone the lady according to Moses' law, Jesus would have been found guilty of sanctioning murder contrary to Roman law. If Jesus was to uh, say, do not stone that lady, he would have been found guilty of violating Moses' law. Now, this is the same situation that, uh, this is the same thing that was presented. If the court decided to find, to find that the president acted in violation of the constitution, he would have enforced the judgment of the 
of the previous case. But if the court would have found that the uh, president uh, would have found the uh, would have found the decision to the contrary, it would have meant that it would have meant that the high court was supervising, like revising the decision made by the other court. So it was sitting as, as both, basically. Secondly, there was an issue raised by Grace uh, concerning the absolute immunity of the president, uh, especially in relation to ICC prosecuting the president. Now, the president receives his power from the national constitution, yes? The national constitution is powered by the sovereignty of the people. The ICC receives its power from international covenant. Now, the question we should be asking ourselves is which of these two powers stands above the other? Obviously, it is the spirit of the national constitution. Therefore, we, it is principle, it is a matter of constitutional principle that courts are the ones that uh, interpret the law insofar as the president's actions are concerned. And where the courts lack the strength of interpreting this law in the public interest, the public interest is not barred by municipal law alone. It can now appeal to international law, whereby now the ICC may come in. And it is a very, this is a very important uh, point to note because uh, if a national court is competent to try matters of, uh, within its own national jurisdiction, the international court's decision are of no importance to the nation. But if the judicial structures are so compromised that they cannot cater for the public interest, which is actually the notion of republicanism, right? Then the international court may, can have a duty, which is also reflected by, by the United Nations Declaration of, of, about human rights to interfere and make proper decisions. Number three is concerning the uh, supervisory role of a high court. Now we're talking about uh, horizontal and vertical uh, jurisdiction. Uh, talking about uh, uh, vertical jurisdiction, it's about stead, uh, the stead decisis rule, whereby the constitution gives a hierarchy of courts from the magistrate's courts to the Supreme Court. Now this uh, hierarchy of courts is meant to cater for appeals, appeals that are of similar matter regarding similar parties. And now uh, we, let, we have to look at the issues that come before the court. The issues that come before the court are of either criminal or civil matter. Criminal matters are specific and designed in the, and, uh, and uh, they are posited in the criminal code, but civil matters are dynamic and they, and they are to be decided upon individual merits and circumstances. Now a constitutional petition is unique in that it is, a, it is a rigid set of uh, positives that affect the greater public. You see, uh, for that reason, uh, a constitutional petition of the same matter may be litigated by two different parties. In this case, it was argued that the, as much as this matter was similar, the, the matter was not res judicata because the, the the qualifications for res judicata were not met. And insofar as my judgment is concerned, I see that too. So we are not saying that the high court is supervising uh, the decision of another court. Merely, we are saying that the high court is uh, litigating on a matter that is similar yet affecting uh, different parties. And at the same time, 
we have to uh, uh, balance the finality principle and the justice principle. What do we mean by this? That it is public policy for matters to be finalized, right? But at the same time, justice, uh, equity may not suffer without a remedy. So insofar as a high court uh, litigates on matters that are similar to another court, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to a court of, of similar uh, competency, uh, the matter has to be of such weight that the public interest in it outweighs the finality principle. The decision that must have been reached in the previous court must, must have been so absurd such that if this court were not to uh, uh, admit this uh, suit, then it would amount to an, uh, a blatant uh, 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 violation of, of uh, justice and principles of humanitarianism. Thank you. Uh, well, that was Professor Mukwabi Changa for you um, on Hamanas Philippus team, <laughs> grounds for public interest litigation, well analyzed on the, the concepts of uh, jurisdiction and supervisory duties of the High Court. I think he has touched on it. We are leaving this platform prior before our guest comes in for the audience. Whoever has something to chip in, either on the supervisory jurisdiction of the High Court, either on the format or outline of uh, verification, nomination, appointment of judges, either on the discretionary or otherwise function of the appointing of judges of the president, or whether or not the president can be sued in a personal capacity. The floor is yours. Let's learn from you too. So I'll start with Santos Michel. Santos Michel is joining us from Moe University before dawn. Santos. Thank you very much, Max. I hope I am very audible. You are very audible. Thank you. Uh, so I will touch on the issue of um, the duty of the president in appointing the judges. Is it discretional or, or ceremonial? Well, this is enshrined in Article 166 1B, as we are all very aware. But I would like to invite you to Article 132, um, 132 1F, which uh, says that the president shall appoint or dismiss state officers to his own discretion as long as it is constitutional. For those who say that the, that the power of the president to appoint is ceremonial, please let us put side to that article because it gives the power to the president to either appoint or dismiss. So um, in dismissal, we mean that he dismissed the recommendations of the Judicial Service Commission in appointment of the judges. I would also like to quote uh, what one panelist said. I think it was Mukua when he said that we should look at the natural wording of Article 166. The natural wording is that the president shall appoint English, English shall, is an obligation. A point is to give a job, to name to a certain position. His job is to give a certain position, recommendations that the Judicial Service Commission have given to him and oh. not to give his own feelings. 
Yes. Um. Uh, oh. Yeah. I. I. Yeah. Uh. Let me uh -huh. see. Um. Proceed. Sorry. Yeah. It's still your time. I'm still listening to. Oh, thank you. And then, uh, sorry, one sec. I think my my gadget is misbehaving over here. Uh, mm -hmm. No, I All think right. I'm as done. Well, the gadget recovers. I think that, that, that was a good one. Um, I, I saw Oduor Otieno raise his hand and then for the, yes, Oduor Otieno. You're still in the house and your hand was raised. Go before Don comes back. Oduor Otieno E. Okay, the gentleman probably changed his mind. Uh, Uh, Donald cannot hear me. Uduoro Tieno is not responding. No, no, yes, I, I, can, I can hear you. Actually, you are the one who, uh, uh, who was having issues again. <laughs> can you hear me now? There was, there, was, there was a gentleman I was calling, Oduoro Tieno. He raised his hand. I'd prefer he goes before you come in. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because I'm also trying to... Oduoro Tieno? Well, you can proceed, bro. Okay, can I proceed? Yes, bro. Yes, you can proceed. Sure, sure. Okay, okay, okay. Um, um, the, the issue actually I have with this uh, judgment and its final orders is uh, the extent of enforceability of the same. Uh, why do I say so? Um, the High Court does not really tell us what should. Uh, Okay, let, let, let this be my starting point. I think uh, uh, Grace was quite clear when she said uh, we cannot quite dissect this judgment from its political nature. And uh, <clears throat> I think it was, it was uh, the LSK president, uh, Nelson Harvey, uh, mentioned uh, quite something about the judgment. And he said uh, the judgment on the appointment of the six judges is not a further indictment from the president. Uh, he feels like it's the biggest test on the Chief Justice, whether she's executive aligned or independent. She can only pass it by swearing in the six judges on 5th of November 2021. So as a follow-up to, to, to what Nelson Harvey said, I think the question with the enforcement, uh, the enforcement capability of this judgment is, the High Court does not really tell us what should happen next when uh, the, the CJ does not make arrangements to swear in the, the, into office the six judges. It, it is, uh, uh, so the, my issue then is, will the CJ be cited for contempt and punished when there is non-compliance with the, with the orders therein? Or, uh, and, uh, I think someone has their mic on. Kindly mute. Kindly mute. Okay. So my issue is, yeah, my, my issue is, and uh, and I think I will I will I will pose this question to to my fellow panelists and to members of the uh in this in this forum. So um, what happens then when the CJ does not make arrangements to swear in the six judges? Will she be cited for contempt or for non-compliance with the said orders, or um? Uh, 
even if so, which High Court will then try to cite the, the CJ and the, maybe the JSC for contempt? I think is, is it really possible then? Uh, because we all know the implications that maybe the CJ can simply make a phone call and, and that judge be transferred to Moyale or, or whatever. So then my question is, uh, the, my question then stems out from, from the two issues, which I would like probably anyone to answer or to respond to the same. Okay, before we bring your panelists, I think the, the disruption we just had was our guest trying to come in and I'm really waiting for him so that we slot time in between our discussions so that he spends his time before, before we finish. But I know that when he joins us, he, I will know, he'll inform me, oh, he's in. So uh, in the house with us is the Honorable member of former member of parliament in your constituency, Honorable Augustine Oneto Yugi, who is our guest tonight. Um, it's 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 a honorable day for me and I think for Martin because um, Honorable Augustine Oneto Yugi was the fourth best oralist in 2004 in a moot that around three or four weeks ago, Martin Kyoko won. And today they are sitting in the same panel and we're having a discussion with them. I think as it's a historic moment for Martin. Uh, he's a former uh, member of parliament from the other way I said, and uh, we hope then becomes a member of parliament again in 2022 in the same constituency. He was the vice chair for Bunge Sports Club and he served in JLAC uh, while he was in parliament. So because we are law students, the first question we always ask is when a member of MP was in parliament, what act did he push or what was his bill? As I was doing a little digging to him, found that he pushed for the Health Records and Information Managers Act. It's in history that he did that. Uh, he championed the Refugee Bill, the Reparations Bill, and the Employment Skills and Development Bill. Currently, Agustino Netoyogi is the co uh, director or co-party leader for the United Green Movement. Uh, I met this gentleman, I learned from him, and today I'm delighted that we are spreading his wisdom or his knowledge to all of us. So with that brief introduction, let me welcome the Honorable to just say hello and address us on his points. I know he's sound on the points that he wants to address. Uh, Moshimiwa. Thank you very much. I'm just so trying to uh, actually get off another setting altogether. My apologies that I'm joining uh, late, uh, and I know I have less than 10 minutes because you're supposed to finish at, at, at uh, 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 9 o'clock. Um, so yes, uh, Martin uh, is uh, well known to me. Martin, how are you? Good evening, uh, big man. Is Martin on the panel or is left? It was just in here right now. If it's not his connection, then I don't know what it is, but I'll get him back right away. <laughs> not a problem. No, I mean, I had a chance to meet Martin slightly before he left for his mood in, um, in uh, South Africa. That was it. And Martin and I are uh, uh, from uh, the same alma mater. So he, uh, he's a young man that I've met before. And I think I'm uh, super proud that... Uh, uh, you people are doing a very good job. My apologies, I'm joining in late. I've just walked out of a class. Actually, it's not even finished. Uh, so I hung up because I promised to be on the call at 8.30, 840 or thereabouts. I know it's 10 minutes late and I know uh, I don't want to keep you waiting. So uh, one, it's a pleasure that people are doing this kind of work uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, it is the best we want to do for country. Always ensure that um, 
uh, one of the lessons I, I, I learned from my father, uh, which I will uh, properly write at some point, I was told that he who hopes to reach the height should not sleep at night. Uh, does not mean you become an Aitana of Ndiwa, but just that you, you burn the midnight oil. Uh, you burn the midnight oil in terms of how you work and do your things. So I'm really happy and delighted that you're doing this. Uh, two things I'd like to say, which is what I want to talk to, because I asked to, uh, to be in traffic shortly. Um, I, I wanted to speak to the question as to whether um, uh, the presidential appointments are ceremonial issues. Um, and to that question, I want to say yes and no. Uh, there are moments, for example, when the presidential appointment, I want to do the two questions that I saw on, on, on the panel uh, thing. Um, the moments when the presidential appointment is ceremonial. You know, uh, Kenya, uh, uh, being Commonwealth, uh, inherited uh, the sort of constitutional democracy where uh, the president is both uh, head of state and uh, Uh, I think we kind of lost him, but he'll bounce back. So don't ask a question before we, oh, he's, he's here. So we kind of lost you. Your connection has a problem. Yes, so can we have Jessica? Jessica Dama, I've seen you from the chat box that you just logged out. Uh, you raised your hand, so maybe you could have your issue before uh, the Moshimiwa rectifies his connection. Okay, um, I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah, we can. Okay, thank you. I'm Jessica Damar from Moy Law School. Um, and I would like to respond to the question to do with uh, the concept of checks and balances. Um, I'm of the view that it is applicable in this case. And first of all, um, I'm of the converse opinion with the position in the David Ndi case, uh, which proves to hold that the state should be accountable for his uh, actions directly, thereby limiting their freedom to make certain decisions um, where they deem fit. According to me, the concept of checks and balances, uh, which I believe is applicable in this case, is of importance since it warrants a derogation from the faithful execution of a particular law. And in this case, uh, the president should have been allowed to um, derogate from appointing the judges if uh, there was reason to believe that um, these judges did not have uh, the integrity that it deserved to get into uh, those particular positions and uh yeah that's that would be my opinion yeah okay, okay thank you martin martin Neto was looking for you kyoko kyoko 
am I audible enough or am I the one these people are not getting? I can uh, hear you, Max. You can hear me. So it's Martin's connection that is not clear. Thank you. Well, before Martin bounces back, before Honorable Yogi bounces back, that's that's why um, this this online stuff gets tricky sometimes. Let's open this discussion for the general audience. We know that you are students of law from various institutions, and it's not in my position to call you out to speak. If there is a topic that we were discussing today, oh, Oduoro Tieno, then go first, bro. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you very much, Max. Ah, uh, good evening to everybody who is joining in the panelists. Well. I think I'd like to touch on two particular issues. Um, number one, checks and balances, obviously, because it seems to be a very big issue of contention. And uh, particularly what I opine is that um, there is a two-part obligation here. The constitution, in my opinion, has already dispensed of its obligation very diligently. It has already provided ways in which, uh, way, ways in which powers can be separated from the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature. The constitution has already done that part. The other obligation now lies upon the people who are sitting in this uh, position of powers, particularly the president, um, the CJ, um, the members of parliament. So what the president is doing here, he is abjectly just trying to derogate from the principle that has been set out in the constitution because the president does not have any mandate. There is somebody in the in the in the in the in the discussion who clearly said that um, the role of the president simply ends when he has been told to appoint. He has no mandate of trying to decide whether these people that he's going to appoint, because we have the JSC who are supposed to do their work and they have done their work up to the point when they have submitted those names to the president. And all he is simply supposed to do is just appoint. It is simply a ceremonial role. What the president is doing, and even the constitution has clearly set up that the judiciary is an independent body. The president should not have say at all. It is simply just trampling upon the constitution. This is exactly injustice. The constitution has already done its obligation. So the remaining part, the remaining obligation that rests on the people who are sitting in this power, uh, position of powers, they are simply the people who are just, you know, just doing injustice. We are in a democracy, uh, in a dictatorship. And then in as far as supervisory okay. jurisdiction, particularly for, yeah. Yes. Particularly for the high court, I am sure that we are privy to the fact that there is horizontal precedence, particularly that um, a high court can rule um, at a later time. But also, I think it is important for us to know the fact that the constitution has clearly stated that the high court does not have a supervisory jurisdiction over superior courts. And the constitution has also stated what these superior courts are, being the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal, uh, the Court of Equal Statuses, ETC. But I think even when it is trying to apply any doctrine of horizontal precedence, it's supposed to do it at a very light note, not at a very heavy, heavy note such that, and, and the law, by the way, the law has stood the test of time such that any petitioner who has ever tried to lodge a claim before the court trying to say that the high court has supervisory jurisdiction over any superior court has always been rebuffed by the court so just showing us that the law has stood the test of time and uh, we cannot go back to any position of saying that the court has supervisory jurisdiction over any superior court so i think it's important that we we shy away from that interpretation so yeah 
thank you thank you door i think you've raised two issues that mashimo was talking about in this book so let's get his view on the two issues that he wanted to handle and then we will proceed with the open forum uh, discussion yes mashimo if you're back in the house it's your time yeah thank you very much i'm sorry but now i'm in traffic and i, I might not have my video on because i'm actually in darkness so you won't even see me you'll only see my teeth i should no i pressure. even have my video on <laughs> So, so, so yes, uh, I was saying uh, that uh, uh, with regard to the executive power to appoint, um, if it's a ceremonial, and I said, on the one hand, it's a yes, and the other hand, it's a no. And uh, I was saying that it uh, depends on what uh, particular appointments. But I saw there were specific questions with regard to the Judicial Service Commission appointments, with regard to judge appointments. Uh, to that extent, um, I think the presidential appointments are ceremonial. And uh, the president has no discretion whatsoever uh, to, 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 to choose which of the judges um, he wants to appoint or not. I mean, like happened in the case of Odunga and my very good friend and former alma mater, Professor Ngugi. You know, the, 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 the construct of the constitution is such that um, you uh, have a check and a balance system uh, uh, in, with regard to the three arms of government. And the way uh, that the president uh, checks the judiciary is not in the manner uh, of refusing to appoint the judges that have been recommended by the JAC, you know, because the JAC then has legitimacy. You know, there's a process for which the judge appointments are, are done. You know, uh, anyone who has, and you saw this during the appointment of the Chief Justice, uh, where the Honorable Mother Kome was, was successful, that anyone who has an issue, for example, against a judge, if it's a criminal issue, if it's a case that she didn't, he or she did not do properly, you can raise those issues at the preliminary stages before the JAC recommends uh, uh, the, the judge for appointment. So to the extent that, uh, for example, the JAC has allowed or uh, forwarded, recommended a judge for appointment, the president's role then becomes a ceremonial function. And, and, and ordinarily, uh, like I said, um, our, our construct, uh, the Commonwealth construct uh, was like, you know, like in the UK where uh, the, the queen uh, who is head of state uh, would then have a chance to meet with the judges or it is that sort of ceremony. It is more of uh, who I, you know, they might not have a chance to, to, to meet in the day-to-day -day running of, of the affairs of the state. So, so the, the ceremony of the appointment, you know, it would be an occasion, for example, of the chief justice, the other judges not to meet with the executive, you know, in a less uh, adversarial manner. So, so that is actually the role that the, 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 the president then has with regard to the appointment. It's more of, you know, getting to meet, it's a meet and a greet affair as opposed to a legal or uh, as opposed to a legal or a constitutional um, imperative that the president then thinks there's discretion. Um, the second thing that I wanted to speak to uh, was um, uh, with regard to the, the yes when the presidency has uh, has um, has a role uh, and the role then is, you know, when it becomes uh, uh, issues of, for example, the independent commissions or issues with regard to, uh, to uh, 
the cabinet secretaries or things like that. The president then has a chance, uh, for example, to remember even when the president has then discretion to 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 say or recommend if it's for example uh, a commissioner of an independent com commission, the presidency, but on their issues, would then refer those fellows, for example, to other further you know further lists of people to 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 be to be made available to him as opposed to as opposed to so whereas for example it's in the independent arm like the, the judiciary the president's role then is ceremonial but when it is with regard to the executive or other independent commissions the president then has an executive role that then um is mandated to 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 execute is the first thing i wanted to say uh the second thing of course uh the question that you asked is um uh, what's the procedure? You, you know, the procedure, of course, of appointing judges, like you've seen, uh, is, uh, is, is uh, the application process. Um, the, the, the qualifications are, are in the constitutions enshrined. So if I told you, for example, qualify 15 years uh, of, 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 of legal experience and stuff like that, then you're subject to the JSC. And upon that, upon the JSC giving you a recommendation, then you ought and they have a chance to, to be appointed to be made judge and stuff like that. And no one else has a discretion to, to refuse to appoint you. If should you, for example, be appointed on day one and someone has issues with you uh, or issues that were not then properly ventilated uh, before you became judge, then this, the, the, the procedure of doing a petition for the removal of a judge then is still available so that the check and the balance system that the, the, the executive has or the discussion that the executive has has nothing to do with the executive using his whim uh, to refuse uh, of his own motion to say, I'm not appointing you because I was told by DCI that you have a case. That procedure then of removal of a judge then, then takes effect upon the recommendation of the JSC with regard to the appointment of a judge. So that whoever then wants to remove a judge uh, then follows the procedure of the removal of a, of, of a judge, which then is, you know, uh, do a petition. The president then appoints a tribunal. The tribunal subjects the, the, the judge to to a session, and then of course, if they're found culpable, then they're removed from the role. So that is what I wanted to say. I wanted to be very brief because it's been a long day, and I'm happy to engage in a variety of issues. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Mishmiwa, for making time and uh, deliberating on those issues. Maybe just on one issue before we let you go. What are your thoughts about um, suing the president on a personal capacity? Like, yes, there's the uh, the creation of the law under Article 143 2B that it should not be liable on civil and criminal suits. There's the creation under Article 156 that gives mandate to present the government, the president inclusive. But what are your thoughts when a, pres a president now comes into power and grossly, grossly, let's say, for example, like the case we are dealing with in here, a president that perpetrates something like a genocide. So what are your thoughts? Are there leeways on when a president can be sued or is it complete immunity? In the you know, you ask for two different things. Um, uh, when you talk about the crime of genocide, uh, the crimes against humanity, uh, then, you know, those are then uh, peremptory norms of international law, uh, principle of U.S. Coggins, uh, principles that therefore uh, you cannot derogate from. Uh, so, so when you're dealing with non-derogable rights, then it is not possible to, for example, say someone has immunity. Yeah. So, for example, the reason why the President Kenyatta or William Ruto, for example, should they be found culpable of having committed crimes against humanity, the crime of genocide, then uh, there is no immunity that you can then... Um, uh, you can then uh, you can then not rely on the presidential immunity at, at, at that particular level, and 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 and, and you see um, 
fact, the question that you asked me now makes me speak to something else. You know, there was an attempt uh, at the time that President Uru Kenyatta and William Ruto, uh, Deputy William Ruto, were at the Hague. You remember there was an attempt by some uh, ill-schooled uh, members of parliament to, 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 for example, remove Kenya from uh, the Rome Statute. You know, they said that um, they would do, for example, with, uh, have Kenya withdraw from the Rome Statute in a manner that would, in their view, uh, would have been giving immunity to the president Uhuru Kenyatta and President William Ruto from land prosecution. Now you must remember that uh, that when it comes to, to crimes or, or, or human international human rights obligations that have that have uh, attained the principle of use cogens, then you cannot derogate. You can then not say um, uh, that if we go out of the Rome Statute, for example, our president is incapable, and the same cannot be used against him. I mean. Uh, you could just suppose that with the case of the United States uh, and with regard to the crimes that the, that the US citizens committed in Iraq, for example, they're just being disobedient. They're just being unruly as, as a US and not having their citizens uh, subjected to, to, to the International Criminal Court. But there's no principle in international law that stops them from being subject uh, to, to the International Criminal Court. So it does not matter that you're not even a member of the Rome Statute or that you're not even a secretary to a state uh, trust, uh, to a conventional treaty that has attained uh, the international principle of use covenants. So I will leave that at particular point. Now I'll go back to your issue. Um, the president can be sued for uh, criminal acts, but not when he is in office. So for example, if we think uh, the president Uru Kenyatta has committed some criminal things, uh, when he gets out of office in September next year, those charges uh, can be brought against him. So, so to the extent that he's still in office, we cannot then use um, our our municipal courts uh, for, for for those of you who understand. We cannot use our domestic courts to try a president for purposes of criminal acts committed while he's in office. But however, when you know that crimes do not die, so that 20 years down the line, if for example, your young generation thinks that uh, the president Uhuru Kenyatta made certain things or did certain things that you know our view were criminal, we can still then use or bring those things against them and charge them in a court of law, but not when it's uh, existing or existing substantively as a head of state. Thank you, thank sense? you, Mishimura. Yeah, a lot of the enlightenment on the <laughs> preemptory norms of Scoggins. That, that was a smart one. Thank you so much for making time for us tonight and for that engagement. Uh, we're eight minutes past time we're waiting for you, but it was a long wait. We appreciate so much for your time tonight. My apologies, I should have come in earlier, but I had another class, so I'm sorry, that's the reason I came in late. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to future engagements, and God bless you, and all the best with your work. Thank you so much. We'll talk further. Let's close this discussion. Samuel, please. Yeah, so we are nine minutes past time and uh, I projected that we finish latest around 9.15. So at this moment, I'm going to bring back my panelists who are still in the house, maybe one last parting shot, and then we will close with the case that we'll be doing next week. So let me start with uh, my Yodi Odilia. Are you still in the house? Yeah, yeah, I'm in the house. Yes, and just one last because you sat on the panel today. Um, what I would say is, you know, I am also following closely looking at the news, the national television, and this is a bold, a bold, a bold, a bold, a bold movement that you see.
that the court held the president liable, interpreted the constitution liable on a personal level, looking at the Bindi case, looking at this case, and looking at the Adrian Kamoso case. This is, you know, it really shows that the judiciary is bold and the independence of, of the judiciary should be protected at all costs for the just for the right to justice to be for the right to justice of the citizens of Kenya to be realized fully. Yes. Thank you. Okay, uh, Ms. Vanessa Mugo, are you back? Um yes, Angola, I'm I'm back. Um allow me to just say that I think what is Going, what should be the greatest takeout the audience and even us as panelists and everyone who's taken part in this conversation should be the biggest takeout should be how we should first of all thank this constitution. I think we should first of all appreciate where we have come uh, from as a country. The fact that we are even able to have a conversation like this and ask whether the president can be can can you know can be sued is already a great step. Uh, so that and many other takeouts, but I'm very happy I was here. Sadly, though, I'm supposed to join another, I was supposed to join another meeting at nine, so I'm not sure I'll be able to catch the conversation on the next meeting, but I'm sure you're going to prep me for that. So, yes, that's all. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Donald Watson? Yeah, my, um, my parting shot would be perhaps um to say that we are indeed in uh, interesting times as uh, we have seen from the case um the case has brought with it uh, new ideas uh new issues of concern uh, new issues of concern and uh, indeed we are in uncharted jurisprudential waters and uh, what remains to be seen is um Thank you, Don. I was I was listening to you, though we kind of lost you towards the end, but I I, I heard you. Thank you, uh, Masila Faith. Faith, are you still in? Okay, Mokwa Bichanga. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I would uh, contrary to the uh, sentiments of most of us uh, today uh, mine is a song of lamentation uh, we have talked of the way the, the boldness of the judiciary and uh, the the visible uh, presence of the rule of law but uh, on my end i'm seeing something of uh, dissonance at at a fundamental level uh, a disagreement on on matters that uh, uh, 
we don't expect there to be disagreement on. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm worried because uh, if, if we don't appoint judges who are going to decide these cases, I mean, do we not want uh, a country that is uh, under the rule of law? And uh, I'm just wondering, uh, just like as Don said, we are in, we're living in uh, interesting times and uh, I'd, I'd very much like to, be, to witness uh, uh, what will happen after this uh, tenure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, bro. Um, Martin Kyoko. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity again. Uh, sorry, I, I lost my connection at some point. But uh, my last comment will be, first of all, I'm, I'm happy with this discussion. I think as young people, we have an obligation and a big role to play in governance and in assessing some of the jurisprudence and other things that are going around the country. I will just comment briefly on judicial activism because I've said, I think one of my beginning statements was that President Kenyatta's tenure has made some of us very activist. Um, and I will say this, yeah, much as I am someone who supports the rule of law and um, a judiciary that is strong, I'm quite concerned about this activism because the counter majoritarian argument usually is that, you know, judges are not elected sometimes and many times you'll find that they rule against the majority or in a manner that is really not in the best interest of running the state. So my last point there will be that much as it's something that we celebrate now that we agree with the decision by the judiciary, it's something that must concern us going forward. Should we get to a point where the judiciary now overrules the public in a manner that is not agreeable to most of us? And I, will, I would ask that we just think about that as we leave. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Martin. And so because two hands are raised and Max Ryan has not spoken, I'll just give him this platform so that he says uh, what he wanted to say before we close our discussion and then I'll end in a minute. Max, I see your hand raised, bro. Max Ryan. Uh, well, thank you, ladies and yes. gentlemen. You know, Okay. Yes, you can. You can say whatever it is, bro. Then close. Time is yours. Thank you for organizing such a forum. It's eye-opening to many. Uh, at you. least we get to discuss issues of uh, national importance before we get to that level. But thank you for also bringing in the Mushimiwa. A uh, good work to the panelists. Good work to the moderator. You've done a good job, sir. Uh, cheers. Uh, Hope to see you again in an, in the next discussion. It was my first time, though. I enjoyed it. It was interesting. Ah, thank, thank you so you. much, Max. Actually, you've given the vote of confidence that Max over here wanted to give. <laughs> so, ah, vote of thanks. Yeah, vote of thanks. Thank you, Max. Anyway, it's it's been a long day for most of us. It's been a long day for the panelists, some of you, some of us. We spent uh, uh, the whole day doing other things. And then when you make time between 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. to come here and learn, to engage, to talk, it's, it's of value to you guys and to us a lot. So I appreciate tonight, normally when we discuss these political conversations, this one that touches on the government, we have a very low turnout. But there's been consistency in the turnout. So when we discuss these other social cases like the GBV ones, you guys are in masses. <laughs> but it's good to make uh, time to learn from both sides. You learn the political aspects of life, the social economic aspects of life, and the decisions they are in around you. So tonight is just a big thank you to all of you 
and the panelists by name that is Mochanga Bichanga Mukua, Mayodio Dilia, Martin Kiyoko, uh, Faith Mutina Masila, Donald Watson, Vanessa Mugo. You guys did uh, Mukua Bichanga, yeah, once again. You guys did a commendable job. Uh, you had a very long, boring case to digest and you made it interesting in the digestion. So thank you. I thank you all who are members of the public and I'd like to have you guys in the panel as well, who took time to come and learn. Now maybe you've learned something and maybe next week if you want to be in the panel, you can hit me up. As we walk along the members of the Lo family, you can get your slot. Next week, um, our guests will be Glynis Maina, Grace Maina, who was just in. We will also have Quinta Chieng from Centum, uh, also a graduate from Kenyatta University. We will have the director, the national director of Kituo Chasheria, uh, Dr. Annette, coming in, and a few team from Kituo Chasheria. We will share with you the case in time, and we hope to see you again in numbers with your friends. Tonight has been a success because of you. Thank you so much, and have a good night. See you next week. To the members of the Law family, uh, you can stay behind after people chuck so that we say one, two. Thank you, Ted. You can finish the recording so that we can speak freely. <laughs>